Our sermon today is taken from John 5, verse 19 to 24. This is the word of God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than this will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Grace. And sorry, the, uh, the PowerPoint there goes to verse uh, 29, but we're just going to be doing up to verse 24 because that alone is a lot to cover. All right, so our sermon today is a continuation of the passage in the book of John, the series we've been going through, that Gray preached on last week. Okay, this is the second half of the event that Gray preached on in the book of John. Last week, Gray did an excellent job in preaching on John chapter 5, verses 1 to 18. If you remember, this is the event where Jesus healed the paralyzed man near a pool, a pool that they believed to somehow have some kind of supernatural power to heal people. Jesus healing this man near the pool is him saying that true healing, true wholeness, true life can only be found in me, the source of life, not in some superstitious belief such as jumping into a pool or whatever else there may be out there. Life and wholeness can only come from me. If you remember at the end of the story, the Pharisees, who were the religious leaders at the time, were notified of this miracle. So they came to Jesus, and they were fuming with anger. They were filled with hatred. Because by doing this miracle, Jesus Christ is validating his personal claim that he indeed is God. Verse 18, if you read it uh, later, it's not on your uh, uh, actual printout, but in, in the Bibles you'll see it. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. Why? Because he was making himself equal to the Father. And the, the fact that the Pharisees are here and they want to kill Jesus and they're in the story should somehow validate to us, in a sense, uh, or at least encourage us to think about um, this miracle actually being something that truly happened. So let's just think about it. Remember, one, John records, the author of our book, records Jesus Christ doing this miracle in a very specific location, in Jerusalem, near a pool by the Sheep Gate called Bethesda. He even gave us a specific time of when it happened, in the Sabbath. And then two, he recorded that there were witnesses there. The Pharisees saw it, the paralyzed, the paralyzed man who was healed was there, and then verse, eight, uh, 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 verse 4 says that there's multitudes of blind, lame, and paralyzed people everywhere. But three, John then made this document that he wrote a public record for everybody to read at the day. Right? So he's saying, um, you can all read it. You can all confirm its validity. He's saying to everybody at the time, go ahead, ask anyone. Go ask that paralyzed man. 
Go ask all the blind, lame, and paralyzed people that I'm mentioning in my document. You know what? Go ahead and ask the Pharisees who want Jesus dead. Even they won't deny it. And I'm not scared to hide it because this is what happened. Here, here it is. It's a public document. I'll give, you, um, I'll give you everybody involved, even the opposing party. Imagine our last government election in Jakarta. And the followers of a particular political leader writes a document. And they say, our leader did this miracle at Bundaran Hai, at this time, in front of these specific witnesses, and even the opposing political party was there as well. If that was a lie, and then they made this a public document, that'd be very unwise, wouldn't it? Because anyone could quickly disprove it. How senseless would it be to have such confidence and publicity unless John was confident that no matter who checks into it, no one will deny it, not even the Pharisees who were the opposite party. Because what other reason it could be that it actually happened. So now the story continues in our passage today. After this miracle done in a public setting in front of everybody, Jesus was confronted by these Pharisees in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, who's them? Well, it's the Pharisees. And to these Pharisees, who would have Jesus killed right then and there if they could? Jesus spoke to them. And what did Jesus tell them about? He didn't speak to them words of anger, but he told them on words of how to have eternal life. <laughs> to people who want to kill him, he's telling them words of eternal life. Behold the graciousness of our Lord and Savior. An explanation of how to be partakers of this wholeness they just witnessed. I've made a man whole. I have the power to make somebody whole, to give them life. I want you to be partakers of this as well, or at the very least, I'm explaining it to you so that you can know how to truly have life, as our passage says. Life to the fullest, eternal life. An explanation that I believe we are all here today desperate and in need to hear about as well. So I encourage all of us to tune in and hear the words of our Lord about what it means to be whole. What does it mean to be truly alive? There's four things I want to point out. One, his authority to give life. Two, his power to create life. Three, our obstacle to having life. And four, how to live as those who are alive. His authority to give life, his power to create life, our obstacle to having life, and how to live as those who are alive. Uh, pray with me, and then we'll jump into our first point. Father, as we immerse ourselves into this event that is written in your word as a part of your inspired scripture. Help us put ourselves in that time and see this interaction that Jesus had with the Pharisees who would have him dead if they could. And let these words be directed not only to them but to us today as we humans as well, sinners as well, are in desperate need of wholeness and to find true life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one, his authority to give life. The word life, it can be understood in many ways, right? We use it in many ways all the time. For example, when you feel a really emotional feeling, a really intense emotion, people sometimes say, if the emotion is good, I feel what? I feel alive, right? I, I feel alive. So... 
to be alive is to be in a particular intense emotional state. The proof of life is the ability to feel a certain degree of emotion. I feel alive. Or another way, um, a philosopher, Rene Descartes, said this. I think you guys have heard the sentence before. I think, therefore, I am. I am. I exist. I'm alive because I can think. The proof of life, therefore, is my ability to think. And Rene would go as far as saying, my ability to doubt my own existence proves to me that I exist. And it gets really complicated. Let's not get into it. But all he's saying is the fact that you can think is the proof of life. Or perhaps a more basic definition of life is, if my heart is beating, that means I'm alive. The proof of life, therefore, is when you plug a heart monitor into me, you won't see a flat line. You'll see a beating line. We all have a definition of what life is. And what Jesus does today, his words to the Pharisees, forces all of us to question our definition of life. What does it mean to be alive? And as we study it, we'll see that Jesus' definition of life, true life, goes way beyond the mere ability to feel, think, or breathe. Yes, those are all a part of life, but that is not the fundamental essence of what life is. So what does Jesus say it means for a human being to be alive? Now what's interesting, the first thing Jesus does to give us an explanation of what life is, he doesn't start with a definition. He doesn't start with saying, life is da 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 He doesn't. What does he do? Instead, in order to explain to us what life is, to the Pharisees, what life is, he starts with explaining to them who he is. He starts with explaining his identity. Well, this should immediately inform us, shouldn't it, that there is a connection between true life, life abundant, life eternal, and the person of Jesus. To have life, therefore, is to know who he is. Right? Well... Who is he? Let's start, verses 19 to 20. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Well, okay, how do I have life? Jesus says, is first by knowing me, by knowing who I am, and he starts in verses 19 to 20 by saying that Jesus Christ, or here the Son of God, does what the Father is doing, verse 19. Loved by the Father, and the Father knows him, and he is doing what the Father is doing, verse 20. So, okay, here we see the first uh, maybe idea of who Jesus is. Somehow Jesus is called God the Son. He's subordinate to the Father, but yet he has special access to the Father. But it doesn't give us specifics to who he is. This could mean many things. He, it can mean that he's just a really, really good person. He's a really good moral, religious person who because of him being so good, the father gave him kind of like special access to him. Another option could be he's an angel, right? An angel who has special access to the father. Another option could be that he's a, some kind of demigod. He's some, some kind of semi-god. He's not God, but it's like below God, but he kind of has special access to the father, okay? Just from verses 19 to 20, all those options are open. But let's continue, verses 21 to 23. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. 
For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So now we get a further revelation of who He is. He has authority to give life to whomever He wants to, verse 21 says. He has power of all judgment, verse 22 says. And the kicker is verse 23. He has the same honor and glory as the Father. So verse 19 to 20, we see Jesus Christ sees the Father, has special access to God the Father. So of course he's not the Father. He's a different person than the Father. But then in verses 21 and 23, we see him having the same authority as the Father, the same power as the Father, verse 22, the same honor and glory as the Father, verse 23. So that was a quick intro to, I guess, who Christ claims to be in the Bible. Let's summarize Says he says he's a different person to the Father, yet same and equal in authority, power, and glory. Jesus is saying he's equal with God. More specifically, he is God. And this has been the theme throughout the book of John. Seven times or more, I think, he says the words, I am. I am is significant. The words, I am, is what got the Pharisees to kind of decide to kill him at the end. Because I am is the word that Yahweh used in the Old Testament to describe who he is. Remember Moses coming up and saying, when I tell my people who it is I'm talking to, what do I tell them? What did God say? I am. Jesus throughout John kept saying, I am. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. And then after that, um, you even see the first chapter of the book of John. You see this clearly that in the beginning was the word. This is John chapter 1 verse 1. And the word was God. And the word was with God. And the word became flesh. So, let's summarize. Let, let, let the Westminster Larger Catechism summarize it for you. Okay? Question number nine. How many persons are there in the Godhead? Answer. There be three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory, although distinguished by their personal properties. Friends, this is why the Pharisees wanted to kill him. How dare you equate yourself with the Father? Jesus is saying, I have a different role, I'm a different person, yet he and I are one God, and along with the Holy Spirit, as we see in the rest of scriptures. Same substance, though distinguished by their personal properties. And Jesus is telling them here, you cannot have eternal life. You cannot have true wholeness until you first understand who I am, who God is, who the giver of life is. How can you have life if you don't know who the giver of life is? Now, if you have questions about the divinity of Jesus and about the Trinitarian discourse, you should. Because when limited man studies an unlimited eternal God, questions should be expected, shouldn't they? Just like an ant can't uh, comprehend the fullness of macro-global economy, so can't finite man fully comprehend to the exhaustive fullness of the invisible, um, uh, infinite, eternal God. Let me just read one quote from J.I. Packer. I hope this encourages us. A God whom we could understand exhaustively or totally, and whose revelation of himself doesn't confront us with any mystery at all, would be a God made in men's image, and therefore an imaginary God, not the God of the Bible at all. Now, why can't we have true life and true wholeness unless we know who Jesus is? Well, because for this reason, Jesus is saying, I am God. 
I'm the creator of life. I'm the source of life. And creature, by definition, recipients of life, cannot have life apart from the creator, by definition, the giver of life. I am that God. And this angered the Pharisees. Of course it did. Jesus is basically telling them, you guys are Pharisees, right? You know your Old Testament really well, right? You know the God that created the earth and the universe in Genesis chapter 1. You know the God who split the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 14. You know the God whose very presence made Mount Sinai tremble, the whole mountain in Exodus chapter 19. You know the God who, by his presence, shook the temple and the ground the temple was on in Isaiah chapter 6. You know him, right? Well, you're looking at him in the face. <laughs> you're looking at that God straight in his face. Just imagine the kind of anger they must have had. Fuming. The desire to kill him probably kindled even more. And if that didn't make them angry enough, Jesus continues to tell them, because I am this God, because I have this authority as creator of life to give life, I also have the power to give life. Let's go to second, our second point. His power to create life. Okay, Jesus, you claim to have authority. You claim to be God. You claim to have the right to give life to creation. How are you going to do that? And I know Jesus answered, anger the Pharisees even more. Because in verse 24, pretty much what Jesus said is he's saying, I'll do it the same way Yahweh's been doing it throughout the Old Testament. How did Yahweh, how did God do it throughout the Old Testament? Through his word. Let's read verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, this is Jesus speaking, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Jesus is saying and confirming, I am God. I will give life to my creatures the same way God did it when he first created life in the book of Genesis. Think about it. What happened in the book of Genesis? God spoke things into being, didn't he? With his word. Uh, let there be light. His word spoke it into being and there was light. Let there be an expanse from the sky and the, and the, and the land. And there was an expanse from the God. Let there be um, uh, the stars. Let there be um, vegetation. His words, the word of his power, is what gave life. And Jesus is saying, I'm the same God from the Old Testament, now in flesh. And I will recreate life in you in the same way I created life in the first place. Through my word, I will speak it into being. Whoever hears my word, verse 24 says, has eternal life. No longer dead, but has passed from death to life. Now the word hear doesn't just mean hear, like just physically hearing it. It means hearing and trusting it. It's like when you say to somebody today, I hear you. I really hear you. You're not just saying I'm... I'm physically able to hear you, but I, I, I believe you. I trust you. So many times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, books that record Jesus' life in the New Testament, after Jesus does some kind of teaching, or after he says some kind of parable, he would say, um, those who have ears, let them hear. Those who have ears, let them hear. And probably everybody there at the time was like, uh, we all have ears, Jesus. We all can hear you. Yes, but not everyone 
truly hears the words of life. So here is what Jesus' definition of life is. It goes deeper than the fact that you can feel exciting emotions. It goes beyond the fact that you're able to think or reason. It even goes beyond the mere fact that your hearts are currently beating. Jesus is saying the essence of life. You know that someone, a human being, is truly alive when they hear my words and believe it and trust it. That's life. I know it's still confusing right now. It, doesn't, it feels still kind of untangible. We'll, we'll clarify it in the, uh, later in the third point. But for now, um, for now, I just want to point out that if this is what life is, this is how life was meant to be before sin entered the world, all creatures followed and heard the word of God. He said something and it happened. That's what life is. Now, after the fall, after sin entered the world, that is not how it is. And I guess what Jesus is saying here is that you can be talking, walking, feeling, working, thinking as much as you'd like. Your heart can be beating as hard as it can. But unless you as a creature, by definition, recipient of life, has a relationship with me, the creator, by definition, the giver of life, in the same way that the creator-creature relationship was before the fall, I spoke, they obeyed, they heard, they listened, they followed. Unless that is how it is, you are not alive. No matter how hard your heart's beating, no matter how smart you are, unless we live in the same way that life was before the fall, the creator speaks, the creature hears it, truly hears it, believes it, follows it, we're not alive. Let me bring it home to us today. What Jesus is doing here is asking, is, is asking us to ask a very scary question. We all got up this morning. We all had breakfast, drank coffee maybe. We all interacted with people. We all, we all came here. We put clothes on. But he's asking us, are you alive? Are you alive? Which brings us to our third point, our obstacle to having life. Well, at this point, some of us may be thinking, of course I'm alive, Tazar. I didn't just brush my teeth and put clothes on and eat breakfast and interacted with people. I went to church. I'm at church right now. I'm doing something religious, aren't I? I'm trying to be a good moral person, aren't I? I'm moral, I'm religious, I'm put together, I'm at church. Doesn't that mean that I'm alive? Our passage would say, no, it doesn't. Remember who it was Jesus was talking to here. He was talking to the Pharisees. The most religious, most moral, most put-together people who existed at the time. He looked at them straight in the face, says, you're religious, you're moral, you look put-together, and you're currently dead. What? How could you say that? Look at how hard I'm trying. Look at all that I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished. Look at how good my life has been. Haven't I earned the right for life? Haven't I earned the right for you to speak the words of life and give me life? That's what you did in Genesis, right? 
You first created the world by simply speaking into being with your word. Can't you do that for me now? Isn't it that simple? No, it's not. It's not that simple this time around because this time around, it's not the same as it was in Genesis. There's something different now than it was in Genesis. What is that thing that's different, you think? Sin. Sin. In original creation, God created life out of nothing. He started from zero. He started from neutral, I guess you can say, for the purpose of this explanation. But this time around, in order to speak life, in order to create life in man, he's not starting from nothing. He's not starting from zero. He's not starting from neutral. He's starting from negative because of our sin. When God first created life, everything had a creator-creature relationship with him. He spoke, he commanded, they obeyed. Behold, life. Every creature obeyed. Every creature heard his word. The sea and the land obeyed God's word. The expanse of the heavens, the grandest mountains in the land obeyed God's word. Every star in the universe, God spoke, they followed. But man. Man did not follow. Man said, I will be my own God. I hear your words, do not eat this fruit. I will decide what I will do. I will be the creator here. I will follow my own reasoning, my own passions and desires, and I will determine what's right for me. Creature wanting to overthrow the creator. And as soon as creature broke the dynamic between the creator and the creature, as soon as the recipients of life broke the dynamic between the creator-creature relationship, they broke the fundamental rule of life. And they're dead in their sin, scripture says. Now at this point, though Adam and Eve were still talking, walking, thinking, feeling, working, God pronounced them dead in their sin. The second they broke it, the creator-creature distinction, they are no longer alive. And the Bible says that's the same for me and you here today. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 All have sinned and all have determined that we've all said in our disobedience, I am God. And we've broken that relationship. This is what God is working with now. Unlike when he first created life, now he's starting from the negative. There is sin, there is death, there is darkness, there is evil. This must be dealt with. This is why I'm here, Jesus says to the Pharisees. I can't just simply speak life into you because I first need to pay for your mess up. <laughs> I first need to pay for your disobedience, for your sin. I'm a God of justice. I cannot give life to those who deserve death. That would be unjust. And if I do that, I would no longer be a God of justice. I can't just ignore judgment and sin. And in order to speak life into creatures once again, I must first pay the price for their sins. That's why you're talking to me in the face right now, Pharisees. That's why I'm in flesh right now, Pharisees, because I need to be your substitute. I need to die in your place before I can speak life righteously, rightfully, justly into you. I'm here to be killed by you so that I can give you life. That's our God. The creator of life entered into time, put on flesh, 
so that he can be our substitute, so that sinful creatures, by receiving his death, may truly live. That's the gospel. You woke up this morning. You put your clothes on. You cooked breakfast. You made coffee. You came to church. You greeted people. You're sitting down right now listening to the words coming out of my, 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 my mouth. That tells me your brain is working. That tells me your limbs are operational. That tells me your vocal cords and ears are functional. But are you alive? Do you truly hear the words your creator is telling you? The word of God we're studying today, that he has finally come and ransomed you. Not because you fulfilled a checklist. Remember just before this, uh, the son of the, um, uh, uh, one of the rulers at the time was sick. And then Jesus, uh, or the father came to him and said, heal my son. What did Jesus do? He said, go, your son is healed. The son was healed. Jesus spoke, go, your son will live. His words caused the son to live. Did the son do anything? Did the son fulfill a checklist? No, he was dying. He was practically dead. The lame man, the paralyzed man, we just talked about right before this interaction. Jesus said, do you want to be whole? Do you want to be, do you want to be well? Go, walk, stand up. His words caused him to be whole. Did the man do anything? No. Did he fulfill a checklist? No. You don't get saved because you're good enough. You don't get saved because you're moral enough. You, do, you don't get saved because you've earned the right to be saved by sitting here at church today. Jesus speaks the word of life into us because he died for us. That is the only way to him. And he begins, a way to earn life is not by me explaining to you what life is. It's not by me giving you a checklist of what to do. It's by me explaining to you who I am. That's the only way to true life, true life eternal. Who he is, what he can do, what he will do, which is the creator to die on a cross for his sinful creatures. And... And it's heartbreaking. I don't, I don't mean to be offensive here. Um, I, I, I'm not saying this out of frustration. I promise you I'm not. I'm saying this out of a desire to be absolutely clear. Sometimes after preaching a passage like this, people still come to me after the sermon and say, thank you, Pastor. I'll from now on try harder to be saved. And my heart sinks. Maybe I'm just not explaining it clear enough. Stop trying. Stop earning. It is not by doing good things to earn it and deserve it. Stop working. If you really believe in the words of Jesus, if you really hear him, he said, I've come to save you. I've come to die for you so that in my death you may have life. Therefore, you will stop trying to earn it if you believe it on your own and receive it and what he's offering you on the cross. Do you hear him right now? Do you believe his words? Will you receive it? Let him, let her who have ears hear. I pray we would stop trying to work to be good enough to have life, but instead believe in the words he said, his cross is enough. Let's end at our last point. If you have received him, if you have trusted in the words of your creator, 
And as a creature, therefore, live. In this creature, create a distinction. If you received and passed from death to life, if you received his grace and his mercy, not by doing more, but by simply receiving it. I trust in you. I believe in you. How are you now supposed to live in this new life? Last point. How to live as those who are alive. Now, many at this point might say, if Christ has done it all, if he's given me eternal life, or heaven, as we say it, on the cross, and we can't earn it, why should I be doing anything then as a Christian? Right? Why should I try and be obedient to God at all? I've already been given eternal life. Why should I do anything if I can't earn it? Well, here we have to be really, really careful. Because when you say that, you're already forgetting the definition of life that Christ just explained. What is life? Life, life eternal, life abundant. Let's summarize. Life is living as a creature, by definition, receiver of life, under the loving rule of our creator, by definition, the giver of life. Just like it was before sin entered the world. God is a source of life. He speaks his word, causes life to happen. And we now, in this creator-creature relationship, as those submitting under our creator, if we truly hear it, if we truly believe it, therefore receiving the gospel, receiving what Christ has done on the cross, you're alive. And if that's a definition of life to us, then we'll con- we can finally stop thinking of eternal life or heaven in the way that our culture defines it. How does our culture define what heaven is? It's a geographical place that we're supposed to get into in the future later, right? That's what heaven is. Heaven is this geographical location that we're supposed to get to in the future. But if we define eternal life in the way Jesus does, not as a place to get into, but as creatures who live under the rule of the word of the creator, if we adopt this definition, heaven will no longer be a future geographical location we must enter into, but heaven will be a state of being we can be in now. Can you live as creatures that obey the words of the Creator now? Yeah, you can. Obey His word. That's what it means to be in heaven, <laughs> to, be, to have eternal life. Remember the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, be glorified is your name. Your kingdom, your heaven, your kingdom come, how? By your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. When you do God's will, when you listen to the words of the Creator and you submit and you follow to it, you're bringing heaven down to earth. Because heaven, God's kingdom, eternal life, is a place where His will is being done. Now, yes, of course, the Bible does speak of a time in the future and that when Christ comes again, for those who are in Christ, our relationship with God will be perfect. It will be without limitation. And we will experience Him to the fullest uh, without being restrained by any speck of sin at all. Yes, that is, that is right. But that doesn't mean that this future reality is totally inaccessible to creatures today. Right now. Maybe not to the fullest, but look at Jesus' words in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me, what? Has eternal life. You can have it now. It's not a future tense. Not will have eternal life. You have it right now. You can be in that state of being today. How? By living as creatures under the rule of the Creator. By believing, hearing, trusting, following His Word. Now, we'll end here in a bit. When you do that, when you as a creature truly live 
and find the words of your creator as something to truly hear and believe and follow and submit under. This is what your life's going to look like. First, because you trust in his word, you're going to finally stop trying to earn your salvation. You're going to finally trust in his word that says, stop. I've done it for you. Receive. That's what's going to happen. You're going to trust him by grace and grace alone. Then, because you trust in his word, you're going to start to try and obey his word. Right? It's a whole part of trusting the words of the creator. You first receive, and then you first obey. And then you obey what he's, what he's saying. By the way, receiving is a form of obedience. You see? Receiving Christ is you being obedient to his word. I'm going to stop trying. That's obedient. And then you're going to continue and obey. So the things that he tells you to do, you're going to do because you are a creature who is alive, who, who takes in the word of the creator. You're going to study his word. You're going to try and obey his word. And then you know what's going to happen? You're going to fail so bad. <laughs> Just like I failed so bad and continue to fail so bad. And we're going to fail over and over and over and fail again and fail again. But because you're an alive creature, because you hear and believe the words of the Creator, you're going to remember what His Word said. That you're alive in the first place, not because you earned it, but because He died for you. And your multiple failures will never make you lose your salvation because you cannot lose what you never earned. And then, because you hear and believe his word, you're going to remember the joy of your salvation once again, how thankful you are, just how sinful you are, but how much he's willing to come and love and care and commit himself to you, even onto a cross, and you're going to continue to be encouraged to obey his word again. You're going to get up and obey again. Then what's going to happen? You're going to fail again. <laughs> and throughout the whole process, you're going to be sanctified. That's a fancy word for becoming more like Christ. You're going to grow into the creature you're meant to be, slowly but surely, will become, God willing, more like Christ. But it's going to take a long time. And after enough failures, um, which if you believe the word of God, that he loves you, that you can't lose your salvation, these failures won't lead you to despair because he'll never leave you. And after enough successes, which if you believe in the word of God, won't lead you to pride, because you remember, he has said, you're, you're alive in me because I've died for you, so there's nothing to be prideful about, nor is there anything to be dis despair despairing about. After enough of those times of getting up and trying again and succeeding and failing and seasons of fruitfulness and seasons of dryness, whatever season of life you're in, throughout it all, you're going to obey what he's commanded, you're going to believe what he's who he's declared you to be, you're going to be reminded of the gospel, and all of a sudden, the word of your creator, without even knowing it, will be such a fundamental part of your life. And all of a sudden, you're going to believe in his love so much more intensely. Because that's what he has said in his word. That he'll never leave you. But at the same time, you're going to become a much more intense follower of his commands. Because that's what he's commanded in his word. To trust and follow him. See, this changes everything. <laughs> all of a sudden, studying theology or in other words, studying God's word, the Bible. Again, I need to start having a physical Bible up here with me to show you. Studying God's word, the Bible, theology, no longer becomes a boring exercise. It becomes a way for you to grow and know how to truly live to the fullest. Because if life is defined as a state of being where a creature obeys the words of the creator, 
how can you know how to live unless you study the Word of God? It's not just an academic study. It's a way for you to live, truly live, as you're meant to be. That's what theology is. All of a sudden, church discipline no longer just becomes a mean thing that elders do at church. It's a way that your elders can help you truly live your life to the fullest as creatures under the word of the Creator. And personal spiritual disciplines doesn't become this boxing thing that just, I can't do this, I can't do that, but it becomes a way for you to truly live. It changes everything. And this is eternal life, John 17, 3. This is life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life, life abundant, heaven is not just a future geographical location we must get into. It's a state of being that existed before the fall, when creatures and creator was still creature and creator. It will exist when he comes again in the fullness without any sin, but it's also available for us now, although not in the fullest. By living a way creatures should hear him, obey him. Stop trying to earn, then obey, then continue obeying and follow him. For those who may be hearing this gospel for the first time, the loving yet perhaps uncomfortable question this passage leaves us with is, are you alive? Have you received this gospel? Have you been obedient to the word of God and stop trying? This cross in which your creator willingly climbed on, have you trusted in that? Those are his words. And for a creature to have eternal life, to be truly alive, doesn't start with obeying a bunch of rules. It starts with believing his word, the word of God, the giver of life, that he has took on flesh and he's taken your place on that cross. Second, for those who have received this cross, for those who have heard his word and received the gospel, those who are alive in Christ now, the loving yet perhaps uncomfortable question this passage leaves us with is, are you truly living your life as someone who is alive? As creatures under the Creator. It's okay to date. I don't think the Bible speaks anything bad about dating. But are you dating as somebody who is dead? Or are you dating as somebody who is alive in Christ? The Bible doesn't say it's wrong to drink alcohol. If you have anything against that, you can come to me afterwards and we talk about it. I think the Bible is okay, saying it's okay to drink alcohol. But the question is, are you abusing alcohol like someone who's dead in their sin? Or are you enjoying alcohol in the way that a live person should be? Under the words and the rule of your God and your Creator. If you are in Christ today, if you claim to be alive, are you alive? Are you living your life in the way that an alive person should be? These aren't rules to stop you from joy. This is the way to true joy, to true life, obeying the words of your Creator. Remember, He's put on flesh to die for you so that you may have life and life abundant. So put off your old self. Put away the dead creature who goes about their life as if he or she was the Creator disregarding the word of God, and put on your new self, who you are in Christ, a creature who's truly 
alive, a creature, the receiver of life in submission to the words of the creator, the one who gives life. And now, live that life to the fullest. The life that is feasible for you now as you enjoy it and proclaim it until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, your word is clear. He said that we were dead in our transgression and sin. It is clear that the wages of sin is death. Not sickness, not um, lack of knowledge, not some inability, but true deadness. And we cannot, unless you speak your word of life into us, obey you, just like the dying son um, of, of, the, of the ruler at the time didn't do anything. Just like the paralyzed man didn't do anything, but you simply spoke words into him. And I beg you and I pray that those here who today have heard your word, and I pray that it truly be your word, if there's anything I added or took away, I, I pray that you would um, remove that from their minds and their hearts, and that they would hear from you, their God, their creator, their redeemer, their lover. And that now if they receive that word and they obey you, by stop trying to work for their salvation, for our salvation. And when they continue to obey you and the commands you have given them, all the other commands you've given them in the Bible, I beg you that you um, would do that for us and that you would give us the life we do not deserve. But because the power of the cross, we can now come to you boldly as those who are alive and we may live our lives and be light to this world until you come again, proclaiming the gospel, the death that our creator has so graciously taken upon himself in our place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.